Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by OTS Washington, part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by Dr. Gray Sutanto, professor of systematic theology. Hey, Gray. Scott, great to be here. I'm also joined by Dr. Peter Lee, professor of Old Testament and dean of students here. Hey, Peter. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you as well. I'm also joined by Jennifer Patterson, our Director of Institute of Theology and Public Life. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks, Scott. Great to be with you. And I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean here at RTS Washington. Hey, Tommy. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. Now, we have a a special guest today, uh, James Eglinton, coming to us from Edinburgh to talk about his recently published and kind of a seminal work on Bob Inc. studies, uh, Bob Inc. a critical biography. But before we get that conversation started, I want to hand it over to Dr. Gray Sutanto, who is James' former student and, uh, and good friend, and Gray's going to get us started. So go ahead, Gray. Thanks so much, Scott. So glad to have James here with us as our guest today. Uh, let me just introduce James Eglinton here for our listeners. James did his PhD at the University of Edinburgh on course Herman Bavink. The uh, product of which was, of course, his first book, Trinity and Organism, published in the TNC Clark Studies of Systematic Theology series for Bloomsbury TNC Clark. And after he was done with his PhD, he did a three-year postdoc at the Theological University in Compton. And he returned to Edinburgh after that postdoc to take on the Meldrum Lectureship in Reformed Theology there. And now, of course, uh, for the last, was it seven years since you've taken up that chair, uh, James? There's a constant stream of bobbing students uh, flowing into Edinburgh, studying bobbing under you. And uh, James, as Scott mentioned, was my doctoral supervisor. I did three years of bobbing studies there at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm so privileged not only to have him as my doctoral supervisor, but also to have him as a friend. We actually have a running Facebook Messenger thread that keeps going uh, almost daily with uh, myself, him, and Corey Brock, another uh, student under James and now a friend among us as well. So glad to have you here, James, just as when we are having George Herring here on the podcast. It seems like a fusion of two worlds coming together and it's always a little bit surreal. And so we're so thankful to be able to talk to you here today about your biography on Bobbing. So welcome again, James. Thank you, Gray. It's, it's really fantastic to be on this podcast. Uh, I listen to the RTSDC podcast regularly when I'm making dinner. And um, it's, just, it's a, always a great conversation. It's really edifying and it's theologically well-informed. Um, so it's, it's really fun for me and a pleasure for me to be here and talk with you today. Yes, yeah, so glad to have you. So we're here to talk to you about your new biography on Bavink. Herman Bavink, a critical biography, just published, I think a couple of weeks ago now, um, by Baker Academic. And so uh, we'd love to just get your thoughts on what led you to write this book, first and foremost, and also talk a little bit about how your book has fit into the current trajectory of Bavink Studies. There's a lot of things that happened in Bavink Studies the last few years, right? The breakdown of the two Bavink theses, the recognition of a single unified Bavink. And so where does your book fit within this current trajectory of Bavink Studies? Sure, yeah, thanks, Grace. So um, I think many factors came together uh, in leading to me to write leading me to write this biography. I'm really interested in people. Anyway, people are fascinating. The world is complex, and how one life um, emerges in the world is always a really interesting thing. So I love biography in general and um, have 
read lots of biographies over the years, especially biographies of theologians. And I think that it's always something that's really illuminating uh, as, a, as a kind of genre to read in order to understand how someone's thoughts develop, because you know, theology is never written in a vacuum. It's always written in a specific life and historical context, but it's never written into a vacuum either. It always addresses um, real world concerns and specific people at specific points in history and in specific cultures. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of biography as a genre, and I think that it's so useful to theology. But then how did I go from that to producing a biography of Bavink? So as you'll know, Gray, obviously, because we've interacted a lot, a lot on this over many years, and as you introduced already, my first book was Trinity and Organism. And that grew out of my PhD thesis. It was a book about Bavink's understanding of how the Trinity, uh, the triunity of God, one God and three persons, how that is revealed in the world. So in the creation, in, in the cosmos itself, which sounds like quite an unusual claim because within Reformed theology, this three-in-one pattern of the Godhead is um, seen very commonly as something that is so unique to God and the world is something that's very different to that and the Trinity is something that we know through special revelation. But Bavink had a very creative way of articulating how the general revelation of God, so that the world around us, is a revelation of the, the triune God. So my first book was on that and it was on different ways that Bavink thinks about God as being revealed in a, in a world that itself is like a big organism. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge collection of diverse things that are united together and that reveal the, the triune God in a general way. So that was the, that's the kind of my first book in a nutshell uh, in terms of its main arguments. But part of making that kind of argument was discovering that throughout a lot of the 20th century, a lot of people who'd written about Bavink had written about him as a Jekyll and Hyde theologian, as somebody who was trying to be orthodox in one moment and then he was modern in the next. And um, so there, there was this combination in him um, of conservative Calvinist orthodoxy, you know, really solidly reformed theology uh, and, you know, the kind of reformed theology that takes you back into the 16th century. Um, but there's also this desire to be modern. Um, to engage with the modern world, to be a full player in everything that's happening around him culturally and, and intellectually as well. And um, a lot of people who wrote about Bavink wrote not about one, but about two Bavinks. So uh, the modern Bavink and the orthodox Bavink. Um, because uh, people, a lot of people who read him assume that there's no way one person could um, coherently want to live the life he, he lived and to go in these two directions all the time. So instead it must be that he's always you know, pushed and pulled and he just doesn't know which of these two camps he, he really wants to, to fit within. So then that led people to write about Bavink's works in what I thought was quite a fruitless way to talk about, well, this paragraph here, which engages with modern psychology, that must be the modern Bavink. Oh, but then after that, there's a section on John Calvin. So here we've got the Orthodox Bavink again. And it becomes very, very fruitless because people just carve up his work and annex portions of it for themselves and say that there's no way that we can just take the whole thing and benefit from it. Um, so instead, Bavink becomes something that people fight over in specific sections of his work. So I guess the, the, the general, the most important thrust of my first book was to say that actually, if you look at Bavink and, this, and these themes of unity and diversity, the theme of organic thinking were different things, even things that might not obviously belong together, can nonetheless fit together in some kind of overarching um, unity of thought. Um, we don't really need to think about uh, Jekyll and Hyde Bavink, and actually it might be possible to see Bavink as somebody who has very nuanced ways of articulating a single worldview, 
um, which is then what I tried to describe as his organicist worldview, because he always uses the language of organic unity of the organism as this one thing that's comprised of lots of different parts that fulfill different roles, but they're also pushed together for a common end goal. Um, so that was so my first book wasn't biographical at all. But within it, there was a biographical urge, I guess, or a biographer's urge for that was what was itching to to burst out of that book. Because in that in the first book, although it wasn't biography at all, it nonetheless argued that there was only one Herman Bavinck rather than a modern Bavinck and an orthodox Bavinck. Um, but I didn't, um, because it wasn't a biography, I didn't set out, well, who was this one figure? But I argued that there, that there was just one historical Herman Bavinck and that we need to rethink his his life and how we tell the story of his life so that it's not a Jekyll and Hyde um, you know, conflicted figure at all, but it's actually one life that's trying to understand just the complexity of life in the world as a Christian and life in your particular point of history as a Christian and as somebody who's part of a tradition that goes back and back and back and back, um, but also that you want to see stretch forward as, as history progresses as well. So the first book really set me up to, I guess, to have to write a biography as the sequel. Um, and uh, so then that's really what I, what just grew fairly organically, I guess, over the years. Um, and um, as, as I just have tried to tell the story of what one life looks like when it, it's, it has Herman Bavinck's sense of pious ambition to live life for the glory of God um, as a Christian from the historic Christian faith. Um, but also who is living out that faith and expressing it, articulating it in his own historical period. That's fantastic, James. You know, one thing that I've really enjoyed from reading your biography is the fact that you really present Bavink as a concrete historical individual, flesh and blood, really living out his theology within his own Dutch historical context, right? And you talked a little bit about the background of the breakdown of the two bombing thesis, people having to choose between his orthodox self versus his modern self. And I think people are still catching on to the, that fact, right? I think the English reception, particularly of Bobbing's life, has really just emphasized that orthodox side, that, that Bobbing was really a resistor of modernity. There's lots of caricatures out there of Bobbing's life, especially in the Anglophone context. Can you tell us a little bit about some general misconceptions that your biography seeks to counter and the alternative that you present in the biography? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess this makes me think of when I first started to read Bavinck for myself. I was in seminary here in Edinburgh at the Free Church College, as it was known then. It's now Edinburgh Theological Seminary. And this was just at the time when Bavinck's dogmatics were appearing in English. So that was when I, I discovered him for the first time. And I didn't really know anything at all at that stage as a, you know, as a young seminarian um, about the 19th century in the Netherlands or even the early 20th century there or the Dutch reform tradition. You know, so I grew up in the, in the Free Church of Scotland, so Scottish Presbyterian tradition. But I mentioned to an, an older pastor in my denomination that I was reading Herman Bavinck and thinking about doing a PhD in, on him. And I was given this warning. Um, well, it's okay to read Bavinck, but don't um, don't take it too seriously because well, don't you know that Herman Bavinck lost his faith later in life and he stopped going to church? And I was given this very gloomy picture of of someone whose life was ended up as a bit of a train wreck, really, and um, whose you know, writing of the Reform dogmatics um, didn't really work out well for him. So I was told, you know, this is the earlier stuff is good, but you know, the old Bavinck, you know, you should really be careful with this stuff. Um, and you know, I, I didn't really see that outcome in his life coming at all from what I've been reading thus far. 
And um, I encountered, especially from a slightly older generation of reformed pastors who couldn't read Dutch, who hadn't um, you know, read Bavink's Dutch biographers or anything like that, but the same set of um, assumptions about his life that had just filtered through into the English-speaking world, really through word of mouth more than anything, that the young Bavink was this um, you know, enthusiastic reform thinker who writes all this great stuff, but then he goes through a phase later in life where he really despairs of what he'd accomplished before and who gave up on his dogmatics and who sold all of his books and um, who lost his faith and then and then died a really sad lonely um, lonely death where his his profession of faith was a shell of what it had been before and none of that is true um, historically and my biography tries to set out why the english language reception um, of Bavink that's that's really you know through folk tales and word of mouth is, is so far from the historical fact. So there are lots of things that my biography tries to correct and give a more accurate um, picture of to the English-speaking world that actually what you find with Bavink is that from really early on he has this same desire and ambition to be what I describe in the biography as a Christian polymath. So he's not just writing reform dogmatics at the same time he's writing a Christian take on psychology because he thought that to do theology in the modern age you actually have to think through the modern mind in the first place the kind of modern psychology that that informs and that also describes how your readers in the late 19th century will read your texts in a way that 17th century people didn't um, he's also doing journalism from a really early age um, he's really interested in poetry and trying to produce his own poetry he um, in this period, he becomes a national newspaper editor, um, he becomes the leader of a political party, and so he does all of these things, and at the same time, never actually gives up on his dogmatics. So the, the very last notes that we have on his own personal copy of his dogmatics runs up to like 1918, so only a few years before he dies, and he's still making notes on it, working out ways to revise it and to push it forward, for example. So I've tried to correct a, a lot of these um, I think false assumptions that people have in the English-speaking world about the shape of Bavink's life, um, that there's a kind of enthusiastic reformed phase and a theological phase where he gives up on it and just tries his hand at lots of other things instead when he's finished with theology. In fact, that's it's, it's not at all like a segmented, you know, one phase and then another. It's that really he's doing both of these things all the way through. Um, but I don't know if you want to come back on that, Gray, with, if you want to expand on your question a bit more. I think that was great. Uh, I, we've got a couple more questions. We've got Jennifer and then me, Peter, that could follow up on that. Thank you for this biography and that context that you were just describing is so helpful for those of us who have spent most of our time in Bavink with his dogmatics. And part of the context that you very helpfully provide is the social context of the secession from the Dutch Reformed Church that happened the generation before Bavink was born. Uh, the social dynamics of that really uh, lay the stage for his life in, in some ways that are pretty significant. I wonder if you could start explaining a little bit of that to uh, begin our conversation. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so this is another thing that I tried to bring out for the English speaking world, because for the most part, we really have no idea of the, the background of the Dutch Reformed Church that produced Bavink. And also, I think the impression that, that we tend to have in the English-speaking world of the Netherlands is the Netherlands as we know it today, which is this you know, very liberal, liberal democracy and where everyone is free to say exactly what they think and, um, and where people are famously frank and, and have really unparalleled social freedoms in every direction. But you don't have to go back too far into Dutch history to find its pre-democratic phase. Um, so the Netherlands only became a democracy in 1848 and Herman Bavink was born in 1854, so only six years after a, a 
big social experiment, this big one, where all of a sudden people have been given freedom of religious expression, um, freedom of assembly, freedom of education, all of these different things. Um, but Bavink's um, father came from, well, he was a pastor in a church that had seceded from the mainline Dutch Reformed Church in 1834. And at that time, this is, you know, the Netherlands as an authoritarian monarchy with no idea of democracy. And it was illegal to secede from the Dutch Reformed Church. So if you wanted to be reformed, you had to be in the state approved church. Um, and you have a government office that funds um, the, the pastor's stipends. You also have a go another government office that is in charge of what people sing in church on Sundays and that, that creates hymns for you. They're very patriotic and very moralistic and rationalistic and enlightenment um, influenced. So if you break away from that, um, you don't have anything like freedom of religion or freedom of expression to justify why you're doing this. So you, you put yourself in a really dangerous position. And this is the background that Bavink's father was a pastor in. So it would be completely normal that, you know, well, you have to have your church service in some kind of secret location in the first place because it's illegal. So you have church in the middle of a forest or you have it in a barn or something like that, or out in a field where you think no one can find you. Um, but it would be very normal for that to be interrupted by the police. If they get wind of this, your pastor will be beaten up. Uh, he will be arrested. He will be imprisoned and fined. And then every time he's caught, the fines go up and um, the intensity increases and increases. So if, you're, if you choose to become this in that pre-democratic phase, um, I mean, you, Bavink's father himself you know, said that they were pariahs in society and the kind of ambition that you could possibly have for your children is very limited. Um, the more you're, if you're committed to this seceder church. So the seceder church is a really fascinating thing to look at in the first place in terms of, you know, persecuted Christians and Christians trying to work out um, what they think about liberal democracy. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Should we desire the end of persecution, for example? So the Baving family has to wrestle with all of these questions as their church did. Um, so, and also the question of, should we emigrate? Is that an appropriate response as Christians if we're persecuted so violently? Uh, I mean, to give one other example, so the Dutch seceders were some of the last people in Europe to be dragooned. And dragooning is when the state stations rowdy soldiers in your home um, to be as disruptive as possible to your family life. And then they also charge you for the soldiers' um, wages while they're ruining your family life. And so it was a really awful situation. But um, the, this big question is, well, we could move to North America and be free then, but then have we abandoned our our fellow Dutch citizens to unbelief, for example? Have we taken the light of the gospel away from them? So they have all these fascinating questions. Um, so the Bavink family themselves were anti-emigrationist and they thought that regardless of the persecution, that they had a duty to stay, to be a Christian witness in their own cultural context. But also they were, um, they, they argued very passionately for liberal democracy, for freedom of religion, um, not just for themselves, but I guess for, for others as well. And you see that coming through in Herman Bavink's father, but also in Herman Bavink's life um, all the way throughout. So the kind of liberal democracy that they live in, um, that they're raising their children in, so Herman and his siblings, is a brand new thing with how you think, think through the kind of freedom that you have. Should you want to send your child to university, for example, or should you, um, you know, live within this free country, but kind of keep yourselves to yourselves as a church and just, you know, you use your freedom to worship, but also to ignore the world around you. And, and the Bavinks were very much, well, you use your freedom to, um, to be a part of your culture. So even if their church was separate from the Dutch um, you know, mainstream 
Dutch Reformed denomination, that didn't mean that they wanted to be culturally separate. So in fact, they were, and I talk about it a lot in the biography, as going on the path from separation to integration. And I think if you don't know that background, it's actually very hard to make sense of everything that Herman Bavink is trying to do. So he's trying to be this Christian presence, uh, holding all of these different things together in all the different fields of life that he's involved in. And to do that as a representative of his, of his church in a new kind of society. It's very helpful background. And in light of that, in light of the seceders milieu and, and perspectives, his educational choices to, expo to be exposed to modern theology in the context of that, uh, to work with teachers and to befriend folks who were very unlike thinkers, and yet in some ways to be genuinely shaped by them is very intriguing. And already that tension is, is playing out in his life choices. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how those kinds of dynamics, um, that exposure to modern theology influenced and shaped his work, and then how we should think about that today, what, what lessons we can draw from that for our own education and relationships. Yeah, wow, what a great set of questions. Um, one of the most interesting things that I found when I was looking at Bavink's own perspective on particularly his upbringing and why he tried to live the life he did was that he said that when he was growing up in the secession church, there were two impulses within his tradition. One impulse was to say that the Christian faith is a truly Catholic faith and Catholic in the sense of, you know, it's general, it's for all of life. So Christianity isn't just, you know, devotional practices. It doesn't just inform a kind of horizontal relationship with God that leaves your vertical relationships with the world around you and your fellow human beings. It doesn't just leave that unaddressed. So it's truly Catholic. It's for all of life, for all people in every cultural context, in every country, in every age of history. So it has to be truly Catholic and be in a faith for all of life. So that was one impulse in his tradition. And he didn't, Baving didn't invent that. You know, there were other people talking about that this is what the Christian faith should be. But the other impulse that he was aware of growing up in was, was the holiness of the church and the idea of separateness and being distinct. You know, so you know, it's the same kind of ideas that people talk about with the tension between being in the world but not of the world, for example. Um, so it's how you wrestle through those issues. And people were wrestling through that in his denomination as he was growing up. And in his church, most people saw it as an either or. It's either, you know, we really keep ourselves separate. You know, we don't send our children to universities, for example. Um, you know, we'll do all of this in an in-house way and, you know, try and keep ourselves from, you know, the corruption and degradation of the world around us. Or, you know, we're going to go all out and be really engaged with society. And having said that his parents were, were really open-minded within their own uh, within their own cultural context. And I think it, part of that might be that Bavink's father had, well, he grew up in Germany on the other side of the border, but he grew up initially in the mainstream liberal German Reformed Church. And then he was converted when he was, when he was quite young, when he was a teenager, and then joined the German equivalent of the Dutch seceders. But he did have a background in something else. He really took his pastor seriously, the pastor that he'd grown up under and uh, you know valued his personal relationship with him and wrestled over whether or not he should leave his pastor's church to join what he thought was the the true reformed church in terms of life and um and teaching as well but he but he really took his pastor seriously um, and Bavink's mother was from the netherlands and she had grown up in the mainstream dutch reformed church but also chose to leave it and become a seceder 
so his parents you know had really informed him with you know just being aware of the the world beyond your denomination i guess and encouraged him were really happy for him to go to uh, a university well having said that that made him wonder with the two impulses in his church either to be really engaged in society or to you know really prize the holiness of the church he asked can't i hold these things together and he was aware of that i think when he was still quite young and that informed his choices to you know be willing to go and study at a university even under liberal theologians who he didn't see eye to eye with at all but he still he thought he could learn from them and he wanted to understand what they thought about theology rather than you know just having straw men um you know so having always avoided echo chambers and i think he learned that from his parents and that actually drove him to all kinds of friendships actually across his life with people who didn't think like he did at all um, and i think that's part of what makes bavink so or what makes his life story so enriching to engage with especially in our day and age when you know social media conditions us to live within echo chambers and um you know we see the fruits of that also in very destructive ways in the health of, of our liberal democracies uh, Dr. Angleton, this is uh, Peter Lee. Uh, I also am a great lover of biographies and, and try to re at least be constantly reading one as well. And so I'm eager to get a copy of yours soon and be able to engage in it. But I'm so curious, some, the comments you just made it about it, in your recent answer to some of the previous questions about Bavink and their family's commitment to the Netherlands. Now, I know the Bavinks had a close relationship with the Boss family, and that uh, Herman Bavink and Gerhardus Voss were close friends. But the one radical difference there, of course, as you know, is that the Voss family did leave and go to the United States. Uh, I'm curious, um, what were, uh, what was the Bavink family's opinions of this? And I would think that, um, you know, that they really could have used a, a, a real intellectual and pastoral strength like that with, with everything that was going on at the Netherlands at the time. Yeah, so that's a, a very good observation. So the Bavink and the Voss families were extremely closely linked and profoundly similar, actually. So the, the Voss family also came from the same area of Germany that the Bavinks came from. And both um, both fathers, Gerhardus Voss' father and Herman Bavink's father, ended up in the Netherlands um, and pastoring there and had very similar um, backgrounds and also temperaments as well so they're they're really astonishingly similar and and Herman and Gerhardus were like this as well but as you say the one pointed difference between the two was the attitude towards emigration um, and I think that that grows out of a key difference in ways that people within this it's a really small part of Germany um, in Bentheim so it's, it's a it's a very small town on the other side of the border with the Netherlands but where there's this reformed movement that produces the Bavinks and the Vosses but if you go back to the the very earliest phases of their of the secession in that part of Germany and the it's called the, the old evangelical church that develops there you find from the very beginning just a division about whether or not to emigrate because you have a you have really limited freedom and persecution for old reformed Christians as they styled themselves in, in that part of Germany, where um, even though you had left the state reformed church, you still had to pay taxes to fund its ministry. You couldn't get married unless you had the permission of your local um, mainstream uh, German reformed church pastor, for example. Uh, you, so your life was really complicated by this. And, uh, you know, so when, when Bavink's father joined this, this other denomination, you know, he, he went to services that were held in, in the forests and that were held in barns, all, all that kind of stuff. So it was really difficult. And 
a lot of people from Bentheim, from this part of Germany, did emigrate to, to Michigan and to Canada. So that's, it's just a divide at the beginning um, in that kind of context about the question of emigration and theologically, are you, uh, is, is there an obligation on you to stay in the context where you were called or are you free to, um, to take what you have and move to the new world? And the Bavinks and the Vosses from the beginning just seemed to be on different sides of that debate. And so Herman Bavinck's father became an anti-emigrationist, I think when he was a teenager, when he was uh, learning his trade as a wheel turner, um, living, in a, living with a family of seceders who were also um, giving lodgings to one of the, well, I guess the, the leading anti-emigrationist preacher in their movement at that time. So it's just, it's a divide from the very beginning some of the things that Herman Bavinck goes on to say about emigration later in life are a bit bombastic. Um, I mean, he talks about you know the, some of the worst things that you can do as a, in his tradition would be, well, one would be to um, only use the freedom that you have in a liberal democratic society to have church services and to evangelize, but have no other presence in your wider culture. But even worse, he says, is to abandon the fatherland to unbelief and ship off to America. Uh, so it's really the worst thing that you can do. But I think there's an aspect of public polemics there. Um, so if you look at Bavinck's own you know, engagement with Voss, which takes, you know, which goes on for, for years and years, and I think Voss is one of his most significant uh, intellectual companions. Um, you, you don't really find an awkwardness between the two where Voss is saying, hey, you know, you, you said all these things about this being the worst thing that anyone could do and yet we've done it and, you know, so it doesn't make their friendship awkward at all. So I think that there's an aspect of polemicization there. But at the same time, I, th I think, you know, Bavinck is so invested in the growth of Calvinism in Dutch culture and he really sees that this is having an impact in quite dramatic ways across the 1880s and 90s especially. And, um, and then after that, he becomes very aware that Dutch society is de-Christianizing in a way that was very frightening to him. So he also has a lot invested in making sure that, that young Dutch Christians don't continue to emigrate. Um, so, and he, he comes up with different reasons for this at different points of his life. So earlier in his life as a young professor, it's don't emigrate because America is not receptive to reform theology and you'll end up being, a, you'll become a Methodist if you leave for the States and that's much worse than staying here and being a good Calvinist. But later in life, um, he then starts talking a lot about race in America and racialized hatred and um, the, the prospect that he thought might be the case that the American experiment fails and just descends into civil war and violence. So he uses this as a different reason to tell young people don't emigrate. The Netherlands is a safer country. Um, so he, he's always the anti-immigrationist in, in really fascinating ways. James, this is really useful stuff. Um, you talked a lot about Bobbing Cesar to integrate with modern culture. We also saw that he enrolled in Leiden University in a very pragmatic way in your biography, right? And then he returned to Kampen still with that desire to engage with modern culture, with the modern academy, who was very much involved in scientific communities, right? Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about the pushback that maybe he received for a desire to integrate even with his, within his own Dutch theological tradition? Yeah, indeed. So, so when Bavink was, was a student, um, he first heard a guy called Abraham Kuyper, whose name will probably be known to a, a lot of you, who at this point was a young um, you know, rising star in the mainstream Dutch Reformed Church. He began as a liberal, who then became a kind of pious um, uh, Orthodox Calvinist, but he was trying to do something very new with Calvinism in the modern age. And that was tremendously attractive to Bavink as a young man. As, as a young student, um, 
And as Kuiper began to articulate his new view of Calvinism, it was along the lines of a, of a view of Jesus that says that Jesus truly is Lord of all, um, not just you know Lord of every uh, human being who will ever live and who asserts kingship over them, but also Lord and King of all of human culture. So it's this every square inch idea that that Christ um, that Christ looks at every single thing that happens in the world that humans create around themselves and Christ says this should be mine and you know so Bavin grew up in a, in a culture where he was very aware of the, the fragmentation of modern life and um, and of you know all kinds of you know, political oppositions and of just big questions in Dutch culture about what do we all have to do with each other we all seem to disagree so much on everything and everything seems to be breaking up and then in the midst of all of this he hears Abraham Kuyper talk the language of Christ as Lord of all and of the need for Christians to think in a much more holistic way about how to live all of life quorum Deo, how to live all of life intentionally before the face of God in a way that asserts Christ's lordship in every sphere of, of human existence. And um, that was tremendously attractive to him. And then Bavinck, as the, the more he, I guess, um, imbibes all of this and the more deeply it soaks into his ways of thinking, the more I think Bavinck realized and articulated quite clearly that he wanted to be what he called a child of God in all things. He wanted to apply the Lordship of Christ to, to every area of, of human life. And he really had a go at trying to do that himself in his, in his own example of, of work as a polymath. But it also made him eventually become deeply committed to the ideals of, of what we might now call classical Christian education. Um, the idea that Christianity says something to every area of, of a school's curriculum. And in Bavinck's context, that was both schooling at primary and, and sec uh, high school levels, but also the university. And then it ends up with Bavinck working at the Free University of Amsterdam, which was a new university that was founded by Abraham Kuyper with the express intention of being a reformed university where reformed principles are applied to each academic discipline where everything is taught from a specific point of view that, where that discipline has been Christianized. So you don't just do philosophy, you do Christianized philosophy. You don't just do law, you do Christianized law. So he doesn't just try and do the polymath thing on his own, but he becomes very committed to thinking and working with others to try and develop this holistic approach where Christianity is applied across the whole of human knowledge. And he did face pushback on that, um, pushback on two sides, I think, in a way that I try and draw out in the biography. So one is within his own church. So within his own denomination, there's a significant segment of the church. It gradually becomes a minority, but a, a vocal minority, led by a guy called Lucas Lindeboom, that was a kind of Benedict option of its day, I guess, um, that said, you know, the churches exist, the church exists for the church. The church does not exist to have anything really to say to culture. It exists to worship, it exists to be true to its own faith, it exists to evangelize, but um, it doesn't exist to do science, it doesn't exist to address issues in art or culture or society or politics. So, and that really caused a lot of grief for Bavinck over decades of his life and um, ended up pushing him to move from where he was teaching in Kampen in his church's own seminary to move to the Free University in Amsterdam. So the, he, he had a lot of grief and stress in his life for a couple of decades because of resistance to this within his own church. But he also faced resistance from people in the, the wider academy in the university scene in the Netherlands who said that his project to be orthodox and modern was impossible that orthodoxy belongs in the in the pre-enlightenment world that you can only be orthodox if you're irrational and superstitious and 
um, and you can only be modern if you've given up on all of those things. So he um, he also faced opposition from people there who. Um, uh, so one guy in particular, Bernardus Erdmans, who said that Bavinck's work wasn't really scholarly, it was, it was pseudo-scholarship and that the Free University was a sham institution because, um, you know, if, if these neo-Calvinists, Bavinck's group, really were doing credible academic work, why, why don't they work at normal universities? Why do they have to have their own Christian university? So he, he, he didn't have an easy ride at all on this and faced a lot of pushback. Um, but remained deeply committed to what he was doing. And, and I think his the actual achievement of his lifelong project was quite remarkable. There's a passage in, or, or a citation in the biography of one of his students. I think it's a Edzard uh, von Dellen. Mm -hmm. And he comments on how you can arrive early to class to meet with uh, the professor Bavink and people in, in Bavink would sit by the fire and the students would gather around him and just ply him with questions on any issue from poetry to psychology to Kuiper's latest article. And he used, I mean, there's this great phrase, of course, it's an English translation, but he says, you know, and then he would do some improvisation for a while, you know, yeah. and that, but that he, but that Bavink was kind of well-versed in all of these various aspects. And you bring this out so well, about his sort of, you know, his polymathic qualities that he's, that he's got his hands in a, a very cross-disciplinary you know, soup, as it were, of ideas, and he's applying his Calvinist reformed belief into each of these areas. But the thing that struck me, I guess, as a professor is that he's a specialist in his field, but he allows himself to be a generalist and he allows himself to be accessible to his students as a generalist as well. And I know he's a private man. He wasn't like Kuiper who was so incredibly public and he had a kind of private aspect to him. But can you speak a little bit about that? Uh, uh, Bavink as a pedagogue, bringing all these disciplines and making them accessible, making himself accessible to his students. Cause that seemed to be a theme that kept coming up over and over again. Yeah, indeed. So, yeah, that's, that's a great observation. You know, one thing that I loved about that particular quote from one of his students was, so it wasn't just, you know, Dr. Kuiper's latest article or um, some theological topic, but the student also said um, one of the new novels in one of the modern languages. So students would say, oh, hey, you know, I just read this German novel. What do you think about it? Or I just read this English novel. What do you think <laughs> about it? So he's also engaging with the students on the kind of pop literature that they're reading as well. Um, I think, you know, understanding Bavink's personality type is, is, is important too, in that, you know, he, I mean, he was a you know, phenomenal reader of theology and of well, everything, I guess, um, across all of these different fields. And he certainly didn't have Kuiper's desire not to have a private life. Uh, you know, so Kuiper was just so relentlessly public and just he never, ever held anything back. So Bavink wasn't like that. I think Bavink was reluctantly public and saw being a public figure as a necessary part of his vocation in life to be a theologian, to be a public um, intellectual, to be a politician. But he certainly didn't crave celebrity. Um, and he, so I think a, you know, a big difference between a public figure and a celebrity is that a celebrity feels the need to, um, you know, sh share their public life for your entertainment in order to keep you coming back for more. Whereas a public figure uh, is somebody who has a specific sense of vocation on which things they need to share with the public. And it's not, 
you know, what I had for breakfast or, you know, my relationship breakup or something like that. So Bavink is a public figure on things that need to be said in public. But if you got to know him in private, he was still very personable. So it wasn't the case that he was, you know, that he was the kind of professor who only wanted to be with his books and saw his students as an inconvenience. And I guess, you know, we've all encountered professors like that at different stages. So Bavink wasn't, wasn't like that at all. And um, you, if you read things that his students said about him, he really gave himself to his students, especially when he, before he married. And he married a little bit later than people normally did in his day and age. When he was single as well, he really poured himself into his students and gave them a lot of his time. So that aspect of his life is, um, is, is really interesting and in, in that he... He, you know, he cares about teaching them dogmatics and that's his task. But, you know, as you said already there, he also cares about the wider worlds, the imagination that they have, um, the public sphere that they, you know, that they inhabit, um, the, down to the novels that they read as well. What culture are they consuming and how does he help them think Christianly about that? Um, and that's, you know, for me, you know, and hopefully for all of us who are involved in theological education, that lesson is a really useful one in seeing our students holistically that even if you've got one task explicitly which is to teach them old testament or to teach them systematics or something like that to remember that these are that these are people who have all kinds of streams of input that are forming them um, even down to the the novels they read or the music they listen to um, do you have something constructive and winsome to say about it um, and can you help form them more holistically i think that's, that's a really useful lesson to learn from bavink in other words, we've got to pay attention to the TikToks as well today as professors, huh? I guess so. I'm, I'm not on TikTok, Ray, but I assume that you are from that admission. <laughs> Just as paying attention it, to what the students are paying attention to. As long as it's still legal, I guess. You'll see that Gray has regressed since his days with you, Dr. Eglinton, you see. Yeah. Well, Bavink certainly shared the impulse that Kuiper had of uh, working out the implications of this theological system across the curriculum, Across areas of society and uh, your biography highlights several social issues uh, that Bavink was attracted to um, and I'm thinking particularly of the condition of the worker after the Industrial Revolution, uh, the status of women in society around World War One. Can you work out for us a little bit how his theological building blocks came to drew him to the conclusions uh, that he took in in those particular debates or other illustrative debates mm. yeah thanks that's another really great question about um how major ideas develop across the decades in his life so i think he first saw the necessity of christianity addressing social issues through abraham kuyper i think if, so if you're young and you're you know you're bavink's age as the second industrial revolution is happening all around you, what you have there is mass industrialization happening in a way that has transformed society um, and just creates so many huge questions about um, how people live within the world. So if all of a sudden it's possible for one person to own a factory that employs a thousand other people and that one person becomes obscenely rich and the thousand workers remain very poor and um, work day and night and, you know, die young because they're exposed to such terrible working conditions. Um, is that right? What should Christians think about what, what 
mankind has just invented? Should we, should we uh, be critical? Do we just ignore it? But what about the human suffering that occurs through this? And what should we think about the, the one person who, the 1% who makes a huge amount of money from this? Um, so, so Bavink couldn't really be oblivious to those kinds of questions because he lived through the second industrial revolution. But at the same time, he has Abraham Kuyper there in the background pushing him forward to think Christianly and to say something Christianly about these kinds of issues. So the biography I show how the first time that Kuyper and Bavink ever shared a platform was at a conference that had been organized to address the condition of factory workers um, Christianly. And all around them, you have Catholics who are using Catholic thought to address these kinds of issues. Um, and you know, you, you, other people are addressing this. So what do the Calvinists have to say? Um, does our theology only address you know, how to pray, uh, what to you know, sing in church on Sunday, or does it address those things, but also have something to say to the social conditions that, that, are, that the people in your pew uh, inhabit from Monday to Saturday, you know, if they're fortunate enough to get the Sunday off to come to church. Um, so he's pushed towards that, but I think initially he he's struggled a bit with thinking through um, you know, how he himself could address those issues um, in a way that I think has a lot to do with personality. Um, so if you think about Abraham Kuyper, you know, he's this big picture guy. Um, he's, um, so in the biography, I, I use a classical illusion to talk about Kuyper as being like Zeus um, and Bavink as being like Odysseus. So Zeus is there at the top of you know, Mount Olympus. He can look down into the world of men and see them all running around like ants. And he's so confident about his big picture. And he'll pick you up from one point and put you somewhere else where he thinks you really need to be. You know, Kuyper loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, and he's just so confident in what he's doing as he rearranges the world around himself. And he has a vantage point in looking down on everything. Whereas Bavink just doesn't think like that and doesn't have that kind of personality. Instead, he's like Odysseus. He's a character in the story and he has a starting point, but he doesn't think he can see everything. And um, he wants to build things up very carefully from the ground up. And for Bavink, that, just that mindset doesn't really lend itself well to um, you know, having an amazing political plan that tells the country how everything should be. Um, but it does lend itself very well to producing very careful theological scholarship. And so that's why, you know, I think Bavink produced the theological works that he did and Kuiper produced a different kind of legacy, I guess. Um, so Bavink tries to develop this kind of stuff and has the impulse to do so, but initially has a bit more of an underwhelming impact. And I think that Bavink, as he matured, got much better at this. So in the last decade of his life, he became a member of parliament and fulfilled that role very effectively and in all kinds of amazing ways until he died. And his political speeches by that point are breathtaking to read in lots of ways. Um, they're so openly and profoundly theological. They address huge social questions um, around the welfare state, around um, colonialism, uh, really big issues like that, um, education within the Netherlands. And um, I think by that point, much later in life, he'd really found his feet and found the, just the confidence and the experience to do this. But I think also he'd had a few decades of theology just churning over in his mind um, how to think through these issues and how to address them. So I think the later Bavink is, is a fascinating figure to look at in this kind of regard. James, thanks for all that. This is really helpful. I, I came to Bavink through, through his dogmatics and as somebody who just grew up loving uh, a dogmatic theology and there was something different about this one 
and I had trouble putting my finger on it at first, but, it, but overall, I kind of came to the conclusion that it had a lot to do with him as a reader of scripture. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you know, you've got all these other emphases here about, you know, Bob Inc. and his social world, which is really helpful. I wonder if you could just talk to, talk to us a, a bit about him as a reader of scripture, because one of the things that I noticed in his uh, in his dogmatics is that he had he has that Christological emphasis as he reads all of Scripture, mm-hmm. and he's not doing what Voss is doing, but it seems informed by that uh, organic approach. You, you opened by mentioning him his his favorite metaphor as being that organic approach to th- to, to life. Does that inform him as a reader of scripture? And how would you put, can you put the finger on what I'm seeing in his dogmatics in the way he uses the text? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really great question. And I think that Bavink is a fascinating exegete. I think when I, when I first started to read his dogmatics as well, I was very struck by, well, his use of scripture and I think that he has such thoroughly classical instincts as a dogmatic theologian in that exegesis is the foundation of, of all theology and good theology for Bavink. And yet the way that he does that in articulating theology today, or in his own context, avoids, um, I guess, what we might call a, a naive biblicism, where you know doing theology is really just continuing to quote your proof text today mm-hmm. and without really engaging with any of the, the history of how that text has been understood or showing a self-awareness that you're reading it in a very different world in different culture and different phase of history to the new testament world or you know the the world in which the the old testament text that you're engaging with was written so he's someone who manages to combine the kind of careful exegesis original language based that you would find in you know, a really good biblical studies department today, a hundred years on. But he also manages to to weave that really beautifully into a careful, expansive view of historical theology as well, um, in a way that you would hope to find in, in a really top-notch um, you know, church history, historical theology department in a seminary today. But then he also manages to run with it into contemporary application and articulation of his do- of the doctrine in his own time as well, in a way that always makes recourse at the end to, you know, well, what are we saying on the basis of scripture again? But being aware that we do so as part of a great cloud of witnesses that's taken you from the you know the early church to, to today. Um, I think that on its own is is a really compelling and unique thing, and and I'm, I think that's part of what makes Bavink's work so unique. It certainly made it very unique in its own day, but there just, there wasn't really another book that you could read that did this um, with the same kind of capacious vision of, you know, the, the big picture, but also the same ability to, to hone in on tiny details, but without losing the, the overall picture and then zoom back out and then, you know, you're back in, in this bird's eye view of the whole thing. So I think in that regard, he's, he's really fascinating. And he does this in a way that also biographically shows such a concern for for scripture and for people having access to the Bible. So something that I had absolutely no idea of until I started working in the biography was that at one point in his life, Bavink and Kuiper and some, a couple of their other colleagues set about producing a new Dutch translation of the Bible, and um, which has kind of been forgotten about. And when I ask even you know, Dutch colleagues today, 
are you aware of the Bavinkin Kuiper Bible translation? Um, people just give me blank stares because they're not aware of it. But um, he spent five years working as part of this small group to produce a, a new translation of the Bible that was just more comprehensible in terms of idiom and spelling, um, language use than the 17th century um, Statenvertaling was. Uh, because even by that point in the 19th century, you know, the Dutch equivalent of the King James Bible um, was increasingly an arcane text and just harder to make sense of for the average person, especially as society was de-Christianizing. So people weren't growing up in the church hearing 17th century Dutch, biblical Dutch being read. And then if you, know, if, you, if you haven't grown up like that, even in the late 19th century, and you're given the Bible that everyone reads, it's a hard text to read because it's not really the kind of language that you use anymore. So he was also a Bible translator in a way that has been completely forgotten. But to have that basic concern for whether the ordinary and, and the newly unchurched person along the street can even read this text, um, and you invest five years of your life in translating it, um, and to have the confidence in your in your Greek and Hebrew skills to do that, I think it's just remarkable. And it's, it's fascinating that it's been forgotten as well, but it's a, a five-year chunk of his life. The turn of the century seems to have brought a turn in his own strategic outlook about how to engage uh, increased pluralism and secularity of society around him. Could you describe that a little bit and maybe put in context uh, his, uh, his work, Christian Worldview, and mm. highlight the book you uh, and Grave worked on? Mm. Yeah, thanks. So this is another development in his life that I've tried to explain and introduce to the reader in the biography. So when Bavinck was young, um, the, the main school of thought, the dominant scholarly school of thought on theology was based at the University of Leiden, where Bavinck eventually studied. And it was a kind of liberal theology, it called itself modern theology, um, that thought that Christianity was about to die out. Uh, so Christianity was a phase of the evolution of civilization so we needed it at one point in the past, but we don't need it anymore. And in fact, um, we should just do away with it. We are, we are intentionally um, rushing through the planned obsolescence of this thing, the Christian faith, and we won't need it in the next generation because we have a secular state and there are no miracles anyway. You know, so this, the church has nothing to provide. So these theologians really set up their own kind of uh, way of doing theology as the, the end, and that there wouldn't really need to be Christianity or Christian theology after that. And then they produce graduates who then go on immediately to renounce the faith and give up on ministry and, and all that kind of stuff. But by the time Bavinck was a young theologian, that whole way of doing theology was really running out of steam. And in fact, younger theologians were appearing who said, well, actually, Christianity does have a future. We can rethink it in a different way. And you get lots of rival schools of thought that appear, uh, the most important being the Bavinck's neo-Calvinist movement and another movement called ethical theology. But they both thought that, that Christianity does have a future and that actually isn't in its death throes at all. So there are rival visions of, a, of what Christianity needs to be or how we need to articulate it to move towards the 20th century. And so in the 1880s and 90s, when Bavinck is a young theologian, that's the setting that he's in. So there's, there are all these rival visions of Christianity and the question is which one will win out. There were some atheists in the Netherlands at that point their kind of atheism was very materialistic, moralistic, um, very scientific. So even though they were calling for atheism and saying that there is no God, they were still, um, you know, they still thought that we need to carry on what we call a, what we could call a Christian moral imagination. So you remove God from the picture, but the world largely stays the same. 
And um, as you get into the 1890s, that kind of atheism really starts to fall apart as well. And you get high profile Dutch atheists who return to theism. So in that kind of context, Bavink really did believe that the Netherlands was um, on the cusp of a just mass return to Calvinism and to the kind of neo-Calvinism that had made such huge uh, waves in Dutch society. And it didn't occur to him that the people would choose a kind of postmodern chaos going into the 20th century and that the people wouldn't all rush back to Calvinism. So he really thought that this was going to be the case. And even as you get into the beginning of the 20th century, all of a sudden Abraham Kuyper becomes prime minister and you have mass public support for neo-Calvinism. Not majority support necessarily, but a big, big section of the population, enough for Kuyper to be the prime minister for a minority government. So he has these dreams of a Calvinistic future that look like they're coming true. But then Kuyper only lasts for one term as prime minister. And around this time as well, um, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German atheist philosopher, dies. And Nietzsche was really obscure in the Netherlands in his lifetime. People took very little notice of him. But then after he died, there was a kind of cult of Nietzsche that, that sprang up very quickly. And Nietzsche was in all of a sudden. He was very hip. And people, a lot of people got on board with his ideas and started to popularize them in Dutch society. And Nietzsche, of course, argued that if you remove God from the picture, everything changes rather than an unchanged moral landscape. And if, if God is dead in Nietzsche's language, um, then we have to revalue all values. And none of the moral trappings of Christian theism are a given. None of them just remain if God is out of the picture. And um, so Bavink saw that this has become very popular and people are, are voluntarily de-Christianizing and becoming quite anti-Christian in, in Nietzschean ways as well. And um, so Bavink saw this happening and realized that this is the flow of traffic now as we move forward into the 20th century. And it's not going to be the case that the Dutch realize just how deeply Calvinistic they actually are, and then they all become Calvinists again. In fact, who knows what they'll become? The world is, has become a much more chaotic place. So you see that then as the context where Bavink, he certainly doesn't give up on reform theology or his Calvinism, and he goes on promoting it to the very end. But he also has a new reason to promote a, a kind of generic mere Christianity alongside being a public apologist for Calvinism. Because you have all these Nietzscheans all of a sudden who don't really have any reason to say, well, you know, we don't like the Calvinists, but the liberal Christians, they're okay. Uh, and, you know, we, we don't like the Baptists, but, you know, the Episcopalians, they're fine. In fact, the Nietzscheans think that the problem with all of this is Jesus, and they despise Jesus, and they thought that Jesus had made the world a worse place because he teaches you to embrace weakness and servanthood and forgiveness and not pursuing might and dominance for yourself. So the Nietzscheans just, you know, don't have time for any kind of Christianity. So for Bavink, he then has to make generic arguments for Christianity in order also to be able to make specific arguments for reform theology as well. So that sets up, for example, why Bavink writes all these books with Christian in the title, like Christian Worldview, which I translated with Gray and with Corey Brock, or Christian Science, or just a book called Christianity. So he writes all of these things, but not because he'd rejected reform theology, but because the, I guess the social conditions for advancing it had changed so much, and he needed to, um, he needed to um, have a, a specific set of arguments that went alongside his arguments for reform theology. 
uh, Dr. Angleton, this this is amazing stuff. I'm I am so enjoying this, and I have uh, as we were talking and and hearing your answer to some of these other questions, I've just come up with an increasingly large list of questions to ask you. But I guess since we do have to, all things all good things unfortunately must come to an end. I, I guess uh, a question I have is, uh, as you've done so much work on Bavink in in as an academic, as a as a pastor, as a Christian. What uh, in, in all of your writing and your researching did you find that was most surprising about Bavink? Both perhaps a sobering thing, you know, we, we tend to, the, the, the potential mistake that we can make uh, when we do this kind of work is perhaps idolize these men. And, you know, within the Calvinistic tradition, we do this with, um, with, with John Calvin. And that's the accusation that's made is that, uh, is that we just make him way too perfect. I have been known to do this with some of my mentors, like your hardest boss, like Meredith Klein, although for the record, I do disagree with, with just a little bit of these guys. Is there something that you came across that you thought that was a bit sobering uh, above it? And then also the flip side of that, what did, what did you learn that you just, uh, that came to make you realize he's just truly amazing. The church really needs to spend more time uh, reading and uh, uh, studying him. What did uh, things like that? What 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 did you find that you found most compelling, both uh, in those two aspects? Yeah, thanks. Those are excellent questions. There were lots of things that surprised me about him, and I've touched on some of those already. I think for Bavink to realize that his expectations on how his culture was going to go were completely wrong. I think that's really fascinating to see a, a theologian of such stature. Um, realize in midlife that um, all of his expectations were um, were just out of alignment with what was actually going to happen and then to change direction a bit in midlife with with how he was trying to function as a Christian in society with the shift away from thinking there's a definite Calvinist future to um, thinking that things are going in a really bad way actually and and he needed to rethink his tech for me that was that was really helpful actually in thinking through um, you know, how I think as a Christian about the culture that I live in and what kind of expectations I have maybe um, about um, the, the future of Western culture. Um, I think Bavink is, is a helpful example there. Um, I guess one of the big things that surprised me in writing this book was, well, uncovering the story of Bavink's sadness in romance for a lot of his life as well, and that uh, from his teenage years until the age of 31 he'd hoped to marry a woman Amelia Dindecker and was consistently rejected by her father and because of that was wasn't able to marry her uh, under the legal terms of the day and um, just to find how much that affected so much of his life actually I mean it was a shadow that was hanging over him for you know 15 years 16 years that that affected everything that affected how he approached pastoral ministry it really affected him psychologically um, affected some of his friendships as well and that he had one friend who just misunderstood him and thought that he was intentionally single um, by principle and, and uh, I think that really made Bavink sad in lots of ways um, so that whole story has never been told before of this big phase of his life and um, I think, I think it's, it's a really it was a surprising one for me just because nobody had told it um, but it, was, it also sets the scene for how he could spend so much time reading in order to produce the reform dogmatics um, so we enjoy the fruit of a lot of heartbreak actually for Bavink in the background and the last part of your question sir if you could just remind me was um, 
Uh, just uh, uh, something that you learn that you that makes uh, studies involving just so it's much more so much worthwhile, while. right? Yeah, so I think something that makes him worthwhile is well, I've very much tried not to write this as hagiography. This is a, it's a piece of critical scholarship and I've tried to write it using critical historical tools, which I think are really worthwhile theologically as well, because Bavinck was a sinner and not a perfect human being. Um, but nonetheless, I think you know, he merits a biography and is really inspirational because of the sense in which his life from very early on until his dying breath is led by a very consistent ambition and that's an ambition to live all of life for the glory of God in his own day and age and to live uh, to, to recover the notion of what it means to live life before the face of God and to resist the secularization of big sections of your life as though Christianity doesn't address them um, and I think that that's, that's just a huge need that we have in in the 21st century where um, the forces of secularization affect so much of our lives and I think for a lot of Christians they just don't really have any idea that the Christian faith has so much to say to, like, to Monday to Saturday or to you know how you do your job to the glory of God or what it means to participate in lots of parts of culture for the glory of God. Um, so Bavinck really challenges us to, to think about sanctification actually in a very holistic way and something that you see in his relationship with his dad as well, I think, is that they both have a sense of pious ambition for their lives. Um, Herman Bavinck's father achieved a lot given the limitations on his life, given that, you know, he grew up in this context of persecution, but he really wanted his children to achieve even more. And they did, and they're a remarkable family, as Bavinck's brothers as well, with all that they achieved in medicine and law and, um, and in theology. But I think that what you see throughout this is, is a sense of sanctified ambition, of pious ambition, and that piety and ambition aren't, um, or that ambition isn't necessarily an unsanct unsanctifiable thing. I think the Bavinck family are a, a really great example of, of how you help your kids even to strive for the very best, but for the glory of God, and as part of a, a really holistic view of the Christian life. James, thank you so much for this time. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. And thank you for this this critical biography, it is, it's, it's not a hagiography. And as someone who is a big fan of Bob Inc., I learned so much about the man behind, um, you know, th these very important ideas. And, and it was an encouragement actually to see his humanity in the midst of uh, obviously the great accomplishments and contributions that he made to the field of dogmatic theology. For everyone who's interested in learning more about Herman Boving, of course, you've heard of us talk about the multi-volume reform dogmatics. Uh, that's a magisterial work and uh, a truly, um, you know, wonderful work uh, for those of you looking to go deeper into reform theology. A good entry point is the Christian Worldview book translated uh, by James and Gray and Corey Brock, um, and that's available from Crossway. And of course, uh, that, that's a good way to, to get into the studies of Bob Inc. and to get introduced to his thought, but you will inevitably want to go deeper. And so we would encourage you to pick up a copy of James' critical biography on Bob Inc. that's available from Baker Academic. Thanks again, James, for joining us. Thanks everyone else for being on the call and for everyone listening, take care.
I'm, I'm genuinely curious if he was actually good. You said he tried to write poetry. Yeah, it's in the biography, so you can read the best and the worst. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I kind of imagine it's like Vogon poetry. It's just like Vogon poetry. No, part of me almost hopes it's part of me almost hopes it's bad poetry because it's just not fair that one guy can do everything so great. I mean, you, you got to distribute the wealth. I right. mean, I've, so, got, I've got a, I've got a point. We need an anthology of bad reformed poetry. Start with Bobbing, move to Voss, and then of course Klein. I mean, Klein's got some really good bad poetry. I mean, it could That's be. true. <laughs> he keeps talking about the eschatological glory cloud. He's got to just move on. <laughs> Yeah, so in, in the biography, there's one page where I include some of his teenage poetry, and one is one that he wrote in English, and um, it's it's really amazing, terrible poetry where it's it's intended to be written up and down. So and he uses like the number two for the word two and the letter U for you, and it goes read down and up, and you will see that I love you as you love me. Oh. I if you love me like I love you, no knife can cut our love in two. It's oh. so. That, that's, that's, that's creative. I kind of like that. <laughs> so impressed you memorized that, James. You memorized that. that was <laughs> under here. Have you tried it? <laughs> but, and we wonder why he wasn't married until his thirties. I mean, but on the same page, though, he, I've also translated in poetic form a marriage proposal poem that he wrote as a teenager for Amelia, and it's epic. Um, and wow. that, that one that... I can't decide whether it's really amazing or really terrible because he's, his, his ambitions for it are so high. And it obviously didn't work out, but um, but he I mean he gave up on writing poetry, thankfully, <laughs> younger years. But then, sickeningly, he then went on to write like the best biography of one of the best Dutch poets, and he was like the, the just the toast of the town for writing such an incredible biography of a poet. So, 